the scripture reading this morning, there are two scripture readings. The first is from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus 6 chapter. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. And the second reading is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Good morning. So the 9.30 service is going to be the full service, Ryan. So uh, this is a great space. Uh, well, it, there's a great side, and there's an upside and a downside like everything. The downside is that those of you guys in the back are really in the back. The upside is that you can still see me because there's a stage. So for those of you who don't know me, that's, that's a, that was a short joke. And, <laughs> and it's okay to laugh. I won't be offended. It's just great to be with you guys this morning and share and continue our series. We're in a series called Christianity and Culture, and we're trying to steer away from two unhelpful poles. There's the pole of just ignoring culture, like it's you know just just kind of there, and then the opposite is kind of the cultural warrior stance. And uh, we're trying to say, you know, how is, as as Christians do we thoughtfully engage in the broader world around us? And today we're going to talk about impacting culture through work, and it's just, it's just kind of perfect because work is where culture is made. Work is where culture is made. Work is where we take resources, time, talent, raw materials, uh, and we, we take all those things and we reshape them for things that matter to us as a culture. We assign value to them and we pay for them. And so work, work is where culture is made. There, there's some other good reasons to talk about work as well. Uh, work is a top of mind concern. Yes? You know, most of us think about work most of the time. And uh, I think the spiritual multiple and dealing with work is very high. That if we can, we can tweak it or think it differently, it has a huge impact on our lives. There's, a, there's an old saying that if you're Noah and the ark is sinking, it doesn't really do any good to throw rabbits overboard. You need to deal with the elephants. And work is the elephant in our lives for most of us. It's, it's really the big thing that really matters. And um, I've been working for 33 years uh, I, I just figured that out the other day. And, um, you know, when work is going well, I'm doing well. And when work is not doing, going well, I'm not doing well. You know, it's, it's just this thing that is this huge in our lives. And here in New York City, I mean, it's just hard to imagine making it here and not making it at work. It, they, 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 the two are synonymous almost. And so work is a huge thing. And as we, as we deal with it and unpack what God has for us in it, it's tremendous upside uh, tremendous upside. Another reason to talk about work is that there's a lot of confusion about work. 
and uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty popular, pretty current line, a thread of thought is to talk about work-life balance. I don't know if you've heard of that term. But think about what it means. My work is here, and my life is here. They're separate compartments. Which you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not alive when I go to work. You know, it's, it's kind of silly, but when you really think about it, we, we, we do this in lots of different ways. We separate work into its own separate universe of rules, and, and we sort of separate it from our lives. The truth is that work is part of my life. It's part of your life. Uh, it's, it's all part of a whole. Sometimes it gets out of proportion, but it's still part of a whole. There's other ways we do that as well. In ethics, business ethics class, I remember we were told that you have a professional self and a private self. And sometimes your professional self is going to need to do things that your private self disagrees with. You know, it was like officially university-sanctioned schizophrenia or something like that. It was, it's, it, it's, but it's out there, and it's an idea that's out there. We also, uh, people will talk to me when we're talking about work. They'll say, you know, I've been doing XYZ in some kind of a for-profit setting, and now I'm going to do something that really matters. I'm going to switch to nonprofit, which is laden with a whole bunch of other sort of assumptions that are half-cooked and I don't think really true that... You know, all nonprofits do wonderful things, and we just hold hands, and we just make the world better, and all for-profits are inherently bad. And there's all these sorts of things, lots of confusion around work, and sometimes it's perpetuated in church, uh, and the church is an institution. We sort of perpetuate this idea that what happens in an overtly religious setting is more important than what happens, then it's more important than what happens everywhere else. And so we, you know, we don't want to subscribe to that. Here at LMCC, you can go back and listen to Ryan's great series on work that he did last spring. And, uh, but there's lots of reasons to talk about work. And today we're, we're really going to just, it's, it is, as, as, as Ryan said, it's kind of a primer uh, for where we're going as a church. It's also just a very kind of basic message, one of the classic texts. It's the most explicit biblical text on work I could think of. But uh, we're, we're going to dive into that this morning. And the, and the message has three parts. Now, the first is God and your work. The second is your work and your God. And the third is the kingdom question and work. So, God and your work, your work and your God, and the kingdom question and work. And kind of the big idea is that if we'll embrace a Christian view of work, we will impact culture. Because Christians work from a different center. If we embrace a Christian view of work, we're going to impact culture kind of automatically. Because Christians work from a different center. And I'm just going to start in Ephesians. Ephesians 6, and uh, that Ryan read for us kind of a classic passage on work. And this is that first part of the sermon, God and your work. And Ephesians, as we think about this, I just want to tell you a little bit about the work of the guy who wrote Ephesians. His name was Paul. When he started his career, he was actually known as Saul. And he was brilliant. He was... He was kind of like an Ivy, he was kind of like a Yale Divinity grad. He was really smart, spoke four or five different languages. He was on a track, he, was in a, he had a pedigree degree, and he was on a track to be really a big player in the religious world of first century Jerusalem. And if you were to ask Saul at the time, if you were to ask him, what's the number one thing that's wrong with the world? He would tell you it's the sect of the Nazarenes, these followers of this rogue rabbi named Jesus who are, you know, spewing lots of ideas that are subversive and unhelpful and this idea that the Messiah has already come and he's risen from the dead. And so Saul would have said that the best, best, place, the best type of Christian was actually a dead Christian. And if, they, if we couldn't get rid of them, we could at least throw them in jail. So he was not a friend of Christianity or religious liberty for that matter. Uh, he, was, he was adamantly opposed to the faith until he had his own personal encounter of faith 
with Jesus. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 9, but this is a major pivot that takes place in his life, and this passionate opposer becomes the most passionate proponent. He spreads Christianity around the known world, and he writes letters. Uh, He writes letters to those churches he started. He never stayed anywhere for long. And uh, through those letters, we get a sense of what ancient Christianity was like, what the issues were that they faced. And really, it's be- most of those letters are in your New Testament. They've become our Bible. So that's his story. Ephesians is a letter to uh, a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, which was a commercial, social, religious capital. It was a, it was a global, we call it a global city, a city of influence in the ancient world. The ruins are still in Turkey today. Uh, you, can go visit that play, that, you can go visit that place. It's still there. And uh, he writes this letter. And like many of his letters, he follows a very elegant structure. He starts out, the first half, talking about who God is and what God has done. And then he gets into the second half and talks about how we should live in light of all this data. And so Ephesians, is, it's, like, it's just almost perfect. The first three chapters talk about who God is, is and what he's done for us in Christ. And then the second three chapters talk about how we should live. And when we get to the end of that pragmatic section, we get to this passage about work. And he addresses slaves and masters. And right away we're faced with the slavery issue. You know, and is, is Paul, is the Bible endorsing kind of, you know, the, an oppressive institution of slavery? He does tell slaves to obey their masters. And I, I would just suggest, I'm happy to talk about this more later, but I would suggest that, no, he, doesn't, he does not endorse the institution. He really softens it right in this text that was read for us. Because he speaks to slaves directly, elevating them as you know, full players. He, he decreases or diminishes the power of masters and says you can't mistreat your slaves. He uh, elsewhere would refer to tell slave owners refer to think of their slaves as brothers and to, again, this leveling thing. And uh, he says elsewhere in his writing, you know, if you're a slave and you can win your freedom, do it. But he does not do a frontal assault on the, the deeply embedded institution of slavery. It just wasn't time yet in, in the Roman Empire. In, uh, in Rome, the city of Rome, one-third of the people, one million out of 1.5 million were slaves by one, by one means or another, mostly because they got into economic distress and they had to sell themselves to pay their debt. So it's a little different than the tragedy of slavery that has scarred our country. Uh, but the, the bottom line is he, had, he elevates the slave, diminishes the authority of the master, and he plants the seeds for slavery, slavery to be eradicated altogether. And that's, that's really not the focus, our focus this morning, but it, I think it's one of those things that we kind of typically think, well, it's just this, it's one of those objections some of you may have, a, a very legitimate one. But the real story is what he's saying to masters and slaves. And, and none of us is technically a slave in this room. And even if you are a business owner or a manager or even a CEO, you don't have the unbridled authority uh, of the ancient master of the house who who could you know, dismiss, dismiss a slave, even have a, a disobedient slave executed if necessary. And uh, you know, some of you may think your job is hard, and it very well may be, and the golden handcuffs may be tight, but you're not technically a slave. So you know, we're, we're somewhere in between the slave and the master. But now where we are on that continuum, I see four principles about God and our work through what Paul has to say. And the first is this idea that God sees our work. God sees our work. You know, as you look through there, he says over and over again that they should do their work for God. And um, you know, he talks about the masters and how they, uh, the masters um, are going to be accountable to God. You know, and um, he says God's going to reward you for your work. 
So just the first idea is that God is aware of or he sees our work. He's aware. It's something that's on, it's part of his consciousness and part of his awareness, part of his interest. He's not just interested in what happens in churches or other more, quote, altruistic enterprises. He's interested in our work. The second thing that we see here is that God receives our work. Several different times he says, you know, as slaves of Christ are the will of God for all your heart, work for the Lord. So God receives our work. That's a really interesting idea. It's almost the sense that, that in our center, we have the possibility of honoring God with the way we go about our work on an everyday basis. And it's rooted in the Hebrew culture that gave rise to Christianity. The Hebrew word for work is avodah, and it also means worship. It's used interchangeably. And in our contemporary church culture, we've shrunk worship down to the time when we sing on Sunday morning. But in the Jewish mind, which was Paul's mind, you know, worship was anything that was done with a heart and attitude towards God. And so God will receive our work. It's the second thing. The third thing we see is that God, God's will or God's plan includes our work. You know, he says, remember that the Lord, what he says here, do the will of God with all your heart as you do your work. It's like you're doing the will of God. God's will includes your work. So first of all, it's really interesting to think that God is personal and God has a plan or a will or an agenda and that we can know it. And maybe for some of you, that's, that's really what you're wrestling with. Can we really know? Is God personal enough? Is his will obvious enough that we can realize it? But Paul's just assuming that that's the case and he's saying, you know, as you go about your work, you do it like you're doing God's will, that it's part of his plan. And I, and I wanted to mention a couple of reasons why work is part of God's plan. And the first goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes back to Genesis and to creation. And a few weeks ago in our objection series, Brian did a great job talking about science and faith. And he he talked a lot about creation and how we understand uh, that happening. And basically what we say as a church is that there had to be a mind and an intelligence and energy behind the world. And the mechanics of it are a mystery. None of us were there. But as we look at that creation account, we see some principles that just, they're universal and they apply to all of us. And one of them is this. That, that as God created the world, he, he created it very good, but he also created it incomplete. That it's not done being created. And so in Genesis chapter 1, it says, he says to the human beings, you should be fruitful, you should multiply, you should fill the earth, and you should rule over it. Like you should cultivate it and make it a better and better and better place for people to flourish. And so there's this idea that, that God's work was just the foundation for our work and that Work is as part of his plan for really not just the earth, but the whole universe, and, he, and he's entrusted it to us. So, so work in God's will goes all the way back to the beginning. And then, then there's another idea about work, that work is a way that, that God has set up for us to take care of each other. The great theologian and reformer Martin Luther said, God doesn't need our work, but our neighbors do. Our neighbors need our work. That work is one of the ways that we provide for and we care for each other. And sometimes this is easier to see in its absence. One of the things that I've had the privilege to do is to lead teams uh, to Latin America to work among the very poor. And I would think of a woman that we met one day. We were working on her one-room house in the hills of El Salvador. Her name was Glenda. And Glenda spends five hours a day carrying water and collecting firewood. Can you imagine that? 
her poverty isn't just the absence of a job or an income. Her poverty is also being cut off from benefiting from the work of others. Because when I go home to my apartment, I turn a knob and I get fire. I open a valve and I get water. And the reason I can do those things is because literally thousands of other people have created a whole infrastructure to provide that for me. And one of the things that I like about New York City is that we get to benefit the work from the work of others all day long from the time we get up. We may not be aware of it, but we really are. I mean, literally millions of people work here every day to make it possible to live and work here every day. And uh, work is part of God's plan. He may not need our work, but our neighbors do. And no matter what kind of work you do, uh, probably the most motivating part of it is the positive impact you see it sometimes has, maybe I have to put that in there, on other people. It's the people you work with. Uh, if, if, if you work directly with customers, it's the ones that are satisfied and it really makes a difference for them. It, when, as I, part of the work I do is uh, on work, and when I ask people, like, what are the best parts about your job? What are the worst parts about your job? It always comes down to people. And when people talk about what, really, what they really camp out on is, is giving their work meaning, it's often how it affects others positively. And so that's part of God's plan, that he doesn't have to do everything directly. Uh, he has set it up so that we provide for each other. We love our neighbors. So work is part of God's will. That's the third. And then the fourth aspect we see here is that work is something that God will reward. He, he says it over and over again, and, and, and that masters are going to be accountable. They're going to be evaluated. That's, that brings up images of a judgment. And he tells slaves that you know, you're going to receive a reward one day. For the good work that you do, no matter what the work is specifically, you're going to receive a reward for it. And this is one of those sort of challenging pieces, but potentially liberating ideas that's embedded in Christianity. And that's that the final payoff for our faith and our life here in this world does not come in this world. It comes in the next world. And, you know, for those of us who want it all now, that's, that can be, and think we can get it all now, that's, that's not necessarily an attractive piece. But if, if you've ever had that sense that this life cannot contain all your hopes and dreams, that you just, there's just more that you long for than it seems that it's going to happen, or if you've had that, this, this sobering sense that there are injustices and wrongs that are done in this world that doesn't seem like there's going to be enough time to rectify those wrongs and injustices, but they have to be righted, then the promise that there is a second chapter is good news. And Paul says, it may be a bumpy ride in your work in this world, but it's going to be rewarded someday. That's the, the time horizon for a life with Jesus is the next life, and, uh, which is a whole other thing that we could, could unpack. But that's what he promises them. So there's these four ideas, that God sees their work, he receives their work, his will includes their work, and that he will reward their work. And for those of you who are, are wondering if your work matters, or if you're wondering... Uh, well, if you know you're not in the job that you want to be in, uh, there's actually good news wrapped in this, that God, God is engaged with what you're doing right now, and he cares about it. You know, and for those of you who want to keep God at arm's length from the world of work, you know, business is business, and it's your thing, and this is kind of a challenging. There's a challenge. There's an edge to it that says he wants in. So that's God and your work. It's part one of the sermon. Part two is your work and your God. Your work and your God. There's nothing, nothing like work to show us functionally who is playing God for us. 
on a day-to-day basis. Nothing like work to reveal that. The kind of the center of our soul. It comes out at work. It comes out in the way we feel about work. And over and over again in this passage, there's an imp- not, sometimes it's implied, sometimes it's explicit, but here's the big idea. Paul is saying whether you're a slave or whether you're a master, wherever you are on that continuum of hierarchy and power and economic you know, sustenance, God is your master. He's the ultimate boss. He's the supervisor. And it, it kind of raises this very practical question of who do we really work for? And who do we ultimately work for? Which is kind of a Bob Dylan question. He's saying you have to serve somebody. Remember? You know, you've got to choose. You're going to serve for somebody. And, I, and more and more and more we're being encouraged to think of ourselves as people who work for ourselves. And the, the latest lit on navigating your career is to think of yourself as your own company. Self, Inc. And you need to market yourself. And you need to be prepared to navigate uh, you know, just the ups and downs of whatever industry or market you're in. And, and actually, I think practically there's some, that's, there's some real wisdom in that. But when you get into the, to just drill a level deeper to the sort of spiritual side of what it's really saying, it, it's fraught with danger. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I think we, we start to work usually for survival, or maybe we start to work for spending money, I don't know. But, the, but we start, we, ultimately, it's about survival. We really can't imagine living in this world without working and generating an income. But once you get past that, work is about self-actualization. It's about, it's about making your mark on the world and finding your path to security and, and establishing a sense that your, your, your future is guaranteed. And it's very easy for work to become God. And so there's a, a number of assumptions that are laid in in this idea that Work for Jesus. Work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your master. Work with him at the center. You know, it's, it's assumed that we can understand what he wants us to do. It's assumed that um, what he wants us to do will be good. Um, in the flow of Ephesians, by the time we get to chapter 6, you know, it's, it's not Paul playing the God card and saying, well, God's God, and so you have to do what he says. It's, he's, he's, he's laid a foundation of saying, you know, God has done so much to reach out to us and so much to prove to us that he loves us, so much to prove that he wants our best, that it's actually in your best interest to surrender to him, to give him that center place. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I imagine that for some of us, the idea of surrendering kind of the center, the guiding will of our lives to somebody else is not something we were excited to hear this morning. You know, we've, we've learned one way or another, that at the end of the day, the only person we can really trust to steer the ship of our lives is ourselves. And this is saying, no, somebody else has a better sense of what will be good for you. Somebody else deserves that kind of ultimate say, and he's not even visible. But can we just get to brunch? You know, it's kind of like, this, this, is, not, this is not necessarily a, an easy idea to embrace. But I just want to poke at that with two questions. You know, one question is, have you ever been wrong about what you thought would be best for yourself? Sometimes we think, we're just, we're just solidly sure that X, Y, or Z path is going to work out. It's going to be awesome. And at least for me, I, I've been wrong once or twice. 
The second question is, has somebody else ever been right for you? You know, they said, you really need to meet this person or you really need to try this thing. And your first reaction was, no way. And then somehow, you know, they manipulated you into showing up or going on the blind date or whatever. And it turned out that they were right. We're not as competent as the masters of our fate as we think. And when Jesus becomes the master of your fate, you know, it, it, he becomes the source, this outside voice you can trust to tune your moral compass to. He, he, he becomes a, a power that can help you regulate work. Because sometimes we work too much, and sometimes we don't work enough. Sometimes we need to make a move, and sometimes we need to stay put. And he's an outside voice that addresses those things. So your work and your God, part two. Now, who, who really, at the end of the day, do you work for? In this, in this text, Paul is saying, in light of all that Jesus has done, work for God. Work for him, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of work you do. And the third thing that I want to talk about this morning briefly is just Jesus' pitch around the kingdom, this idea of the kingdom. So it's the kingdom question in your work. That's the third part of the sermon this morning. And we shift from these words that Paul said to masters and slaves to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus' most famous sermon, he's laying out everything. He's laying out, this is, this is my kingdom, this is my agenda, this is my will, the same thing. This is, this is what I'm about, and this is what it means to participate in that and live with that as your center. And when he gets into chapter, what's chapter 6 for us, which is basically the middle of, the, of his talk, he says something that's very, very challenging. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve, two, you've got to pick who you can serve. And it almost sounds like, again, he's sort of playing that authority card. I'm God. You need to listen to me. But then what happens next is very, very interesting. If his pitch is, serve me, his reasons benefit us in amazing ways. Because he basically has two reasons. The first reason, he says, is that God is your heavenly father and he's going to take care of you. God's going to care for you if you make his kingdom first. And the, and the flip side is the benefit that accrues to us if we'll do this. And he says, you're not going to have to worry. You're not going to have to worry. At least you're not going to have to worry the way people worry who, feel like they ha- who live like they have to take care of themselves. Really amazing. And he sums it up there. And um, we read it. I'm going to read it again. I can find it here. Sorry. But it's Matthew 6, verses 32, 33. He says, Don't worry about these things, saying, What will you eat? What will you drink? What will we wear? These things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Actually, the, the, the Greek word there is pagans, people that have other gods. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek his kingdom above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. He's really inviting us to make a trade. You know, he's like he's appealing to that deal chaser in each one of us and saying, you know, you can have this one kind of life where you build your own empire and your own kingdom through your work. You're never going to have the security you crave, and you're going to have a lot of worry. Or you can look at your work like everything else as an arena to follow my plan and my agenda and my will, by my power, by the way. And then you're going to have everything you need, and you're not going to need to worry. I have a friend, a colleague, who is, uh, if those of you in finance would know him, he's on TV. And uh, a few years ago, 
And he, he, for following the kingdom for him means being pretty explicit about his faith uh, in other contexts, not necessarily at work. Some of those, those talks he did were on, online, and major investment bank let him go because he was too public about his faith. And it sent him into a spin. You know, what, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Are my best days behind me? Uh, I don't know. He didn't, maybe was it really worth it? Uh, what should I do next? And it, it was really hard. And yet, because he's a person who at the end of the day, it's the kingdom that really matters, he had a center, and he had a community that prayed for him and supported, with him, supported him. It took about two years, but you know, he landed a different gig, better gig. He, he had a, he's continued on in finance with a deeper sense of clarity about his calling, and he has an amazing impact in his world. And it, it's like he surrendered that center and he's lived this out, you know, that at the end of the day, it's a much more peace-filled way to approach your work. And so I, I, that's what's being suggested here, that this trade, this, it's really a trade. You know, it's, it's, it's who is this all about? And Jesus says, make it about my kingdom. Make it about me, and then I'll take care of you. It's helpful to think as I close that, or remember that, Jesus faced this very, very same dilemma. If you spend some time in Matthew and you go back a couple chapters from chapter 6, chapter 4, it says that he was led out of the desert to be tempted. He spent 40 days there and nothing happened for the first 40 days. And then at the end, when he's hungry and lonely and tired, the devil comes to him with three opportunities. One of those opportunities was for Jesus to possess the kingdoms of the world to take over, and, and it says that the devil said, you know, bow to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And the irony is Jesus is going to possess the kingdoms of the world anyway. At least that's the way the biblical story unfolds. He's going to be recognized as the rightful and loving Lord of history at the end of time. And so what was really being offered to him was a shortcut. You know, avoid the difficulties now for a fast track to getting ahead. And he said, no. He said, no. He said, God says we should have no other God but besides him. God's going to be my God. Even though that may cost me in the short term, it's going to pay off in the long term. He said, no. And so he's been through this very same dilemma that many of us face between the tension between what seems like it may be expedient now and what we know in our hearts is going to be really good in the long term. And he made that choice. And I share that not to suggest that Jesus is a model for us to follow so much as to remind you or to share with you maybe for the first time that because of what he did, because of his willingness to forgo the easy path, uh, he ended up on the cross. He ended up paying for all the times when we make work our God and we make other things our God, when we just aren't willing to let God in and trust him. He paid for all that. And he rose again to prove that he can give us the power to live a new life even in the context of our work, even if it feels like sometimes we're working like a slave. And so that's what he did for us, and that's what he offers to us. And when we embrace that, and when we live in, lean into that and live in that, uh, it's disruptive of typical work culture. And when that's disrupted, it impacts culture. And of course, when you impact culture in New York, you impact the world. Let's pray. God, thank you that... Uh, we have these pieces, these threads where you speak to things that are of 
of a top-of-mind concern for us. And work is certainly one of them. And I don't want to suggest or pretend that it's an easy sell to, to think that we can trust you with this piece of our lives that's so important to us. But I ask that uh, in different ways that are appropriate to each of us, you will woo us and challenge us and draw us into a space where we realize you care about this, you have resources for us in this, and you're going to walk with us in this. Not necessarily making it easier, but knowing that we're not alone and that we don't have to carry the burden of worry on our shoulders. So I pray that that will be real for us in this church and in this place. In Christ's name, amen.